Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Eaglebrook Church. It's really good to have you with us this weekend. We're wrapping up a series that we've been in for the last couple weeks called The Test. And we got that title from Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, where God is speaking to his people. And he says this. He says, you have robbed me of the tithes and offerings due to me. Notice that he distinguishes between a tithe and an offering. As Bob mentioned last week, a tithe was a tenth. It was taking the first 10% of what you earned and then giving it back to your local church to further God's work in the world. But then there's something called an offering that's above and beyond that. God says, you've robbed me of the tithes and offerings due to me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there will not be enough room to store it. Now what's interesting about this verse is that all throughout the Bible, God says that we're not to test him, except when it comes to this issue. God says when it comes to generosity, go ahead, test me. See if I don't pour out a blessing in your life. And so for the last couple weeks, we've been talking about the 90-day tithing challenge. And I wanted to let you know that as of right now, we have had 1,263 households sign up to take the 90-day tithing challenge, which is incredible. So proud of each of you that are taking this step to say, God, we trust you in the area of our finances. My wife and I have been tithing pretty much ever since we became followers of Christ. I was in college when that happened, and we have seen God use that in our life in a powerful way. Now, today's message is going to take a little bit of a left turn because today's message is titled, What Does the Lord Require of You? Because God requires more of us than just a 10% tithe. He wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves. He wants us to care for the poor. He wants us to do justice and make things right. In fact, I want to make the case today that to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ means in part that you do something to care for the poor. That no Christian in America today can take a pass on this one. And to make that case, I want to begin with a question. Have you ever had a time in your life where you thought, if I had only known? A couple months ago, I was speaking here at Eagle Brook, and as a part of a message where I was trying to talk about not to compare yourself to other people, I used an illustration where I dressed up as a hipster. Here's a picture of that in case you missed that weekend. Now, direct your attention to my jeans, which you can see in this picture right here. I could hardly breathe in those things. I was also having a hard time changing into them during the service. And so one of my colleagues, Michael Donnelly, he said, you know, for the 11 o'clock service, you should just wear the skinny jeans underneath your other jeans. That way, when it's time to change, all you got to do is take the other jeans off. I thought, that is a great idea. So I spoke the whole 11 o'clock service with skinny jeans underneath my other jeans. I waddled over to the plasma. <laughs> I took deep breaths and tried not to pass out. Finally, it was time for me to go change. I ran back. I put on my vest, my glasses, my hat, my chain. But I forgot to take off my other jeans. And so I went back out, told a couple jokes about how skinny my jeans were. And then I noticed that everybody was looking at me really confused. Like, those look like the same jeans you had on before. Here's a picture of the 11 o'clock service. <laughs> that didn't go quite as well. Total failure. 
I drove home that weekend just frustrated that I botched the most entertaining part at our biggest service of the weekend. I thought, if I had only known that I had not taken off my other jeans. Now, that's kind of a harmless example, but I can think of others that are a little bit more hurtful. For instance, when I was just a little kid, my mom came home from work one day, and she said to my dad, she said, you know, there's this new company, it's called eBay, it's going to be selling things online with people. I think it's going to be pretty popular. We should try to get in on the opening and buy some stock. My dad said, E-what? Never even heard of it. eBay opened at $35 a share. It immediately jumped up to $50 a share, but then dropped down to $25. My dad had been watching it, but he was at a, a, a wedding out in California. So he thought, well, I'll purchase it when I get home. But the, by the time he got home, it was back up to $50 a share. My dad thought, oh, missed my chance. Little did he know that eBay, before it split, would be at $400 a share. Have I told you that I'm an only child in line to receive the entire inheritance? <laughs> if my dad had only known... Now, you could probably think of your own if I had only known stories. Some of them might involve investments. Some of them might involve missing out on meeting a celebrity or something like that. But I doubt that any of us could top the if I had only known story that Jesus shares in Matthew 25. The context is judgment day. People are standing before God, ready to give an account of their life. And Jesus tells this story about a king who represents God in the story. And the king divides the people up into two different groups. He says this to the first group. He says, then the king will say to the righteous, so that's the first group, people who are righteous, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Now, at this point in the story, the people are saying to the king, we don't get it. We're confused. God, when did we ever see you hungry? We never saw that. When did we ever see you thirsty or naked in need of clothing? I mean, we, we never saw this, God. And that's when Jesus drops the punchline of the story. He says, and the king will tell them, I assure you, when you did it to the one of the least of my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says to the second group, the unrighteous people, he says, I was hungry and you didn't give me any food. I was thirsty and you didn't have time to give me anything to drink. I, I needed clothing and you didn't provide any for me. And this group is confused as well. They're like, God, we, we never saw you hungry. We, we never saw you thirsty. And listen to how Jesus concludes the story. It says, and the king will answer, I assure you, when you refuse to help the least of my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. That verse has always sent a shiver down my spine. Can you imagine being in that second group? And you're going, if I had only known. If I had only known that whatever I do for the least of my fellow human beings, I was really doing that to God. 
And now I'm headed towards eternal punishment. It's the ultimate, if I had only known moment. Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, you're doing it for me. How is that possible? I mean, how is it possible that what you do for a fellow human being is really like you're doing it to Jesus Christ himself? I think the best analogy for this might be a parent and their children. I remember driving home from the hospital with each of my four kids, and it was like I had nitroglycerin in the back seat. I mean, I'm in the right lane going 35 miles an hour, yelling at people, you know, slow down, because I felt like whatever happened to that little life was going to happen to me. And that dynamic has never changed. If somebody hurts one of my kids, that feels like it hurts me. Conversely, if somebody gives to one of my kids, if they encourage them or invest in their life in some way, it feels like they're giving to me. Jesus says it's like that. Whatever you do for one of my children, especially the least, the ones who are struggling the most, it's like you're doing it to me. And notice the verb here. Do. Whatever you do for the least of these. Compassion isn't just what you feel. Sometimes people say, well, I feel so compassionate for them or I feel so bad for them. But compassion isn't just what you feel, it's really what you do. But if you're like me, oftentimes you don't know what to do, right? I mean, the needs of this world seem so great, you don't even know where to start. Here's what you need to hear today. You can't do everything, but you can do something. You can't help everyone, but you could help someone. Mother Teresa said, if you can't feed 100 people, just try feeding one can't help everyone, but you can help someone. And so in our time left, I want to give you two ways that you can do something to help the least of these in the world today. And the first one is this, get out of your world. One of the great dangers, I think, of living in a suburb of the Twin Cities is that it's easy to become insulated to the poor. The roads we drive on, the places we park our car, the bike rides, the bike trails that we go on, you can go months without ever interfacing with someone who is living in poverty. Months without ever interfacing with someone outside of your little slice of the world. I think about this sometimes with my kids. Like all kids, there are certain foods that they don't want to eat. They don't want to eat zucchini. They don't want to eat mushrooms. Pastor John Ortberg says that when he was a kid growing up in a Swedish family, they used to have to eat lutefisk for Thanksgiving. And all the kids would complain about that. But then Ortberg's grandfather would tell them that if you eat lutefisk, you will be able to run fast and you'll grow hair on your chest. <laughs> and according to Ortberg, all Swedes want that. Even the women do, he says. <laughs> and so all the kids would go ahead and they would eat the lutefisk. Now, while our kids complain about the food that they have to eat, most of the rest of the world has a different food problem. They complain about the food that they don't have to eat. And we know that. We've all heard the statistics, but we forget. Jesus said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. But here's my problem. I can go months without ever seeing someone who genuinely needs food or something to drink. I know the numbers, but I don't know their names. 
I've seen the statistics, but I haven't seen their face. That's why I have to be intentional once in a while about getting out of my little slice of the world. For years, I would drive by these low-income apartment complexes near my house. They were located across from the church I used to work at and next to some tennis courts that I play tennis at with my kids. And I would usually drive by these apartments, and I wouldn't think anything of it. Drive by, windows up, air conditioning on, didn't give it much thought. Until last year, my wife and I started to talk about how we can make Easter about more than just Cadbury eggs and peeps. And so we decided to bring Easter baskets to this apartment complex. We would knock on the door, and when they would answer, we would hand them a basket filled with candy and gift cards to Target, and then we would ask them, can we pray for you in any way? It was an eye-opening experience. Every situation was different. The one that stuck out the most to me, though, was a family that the moment they opened up the door, I could tell they were more interested in the bowl they had been smoking than the basket I was offering, okay? I mean, it just hit me. And the dad got this, like, really paranoid look on his face, and he looked like he was about to shut the door, but all of a sudden, his five-year-old daughter came around the corner. And she made eye contact with my five-year-old daughter, Isabel. And without me even asking her to, my daughter took off her frozen movie bracelet and she just reached it out to this little girl. Without saying a word, this girl walked over, she grabbed the bracelet, and for just a moment as their hands met, you could see the slightest little smile curl on her face. And then the door was shut. I don't know that little girl's name but I see her face. And every time I drive by those apartment complexes today, I pray for her. I pray that God would protect her. I pray that God would watch out for her as she's being raised in a pretty challenging environment. And my wife and I have already begun to talk about how we can make this a lifestyle to reach that apartment complex for Christ. Friends, the world is watching us. And they are not impressed by how big our church is. But when a human being sacrifices their time and their resources for no strategic reason whatsoever, that's when the world stands up and begins to take notice. When an upstanding citizen walks into a prison to teach an inmate the Bible, that's when the world stands up and takes notice. When an educated person sits down to tutor a child that they've never met before, that's when the world stands up to take notice. When a person who lives in a 3,000-square-foot home picks up a hammer and begins to build a house for somebody who doesn't have one, like our senior pastor Bob Merritt did recently on a Habitat for Humanity trip, that is when the world stands up and begins to take notice. When a young person filled with energy and a busy life walks into a nursing home to sit by the bed of a man or woman that the world has largely forgotten. That's when the world stands up and goes, maybe this Jesus Christ thing is for real. Maybe he really can change a person's life. But you got to cross that cultural barrier, that ethnic barrier, that generational barrier. You've got to do something once in a while to get out of your little slice of the world. 
Second way to do something to care for the least of these is this. Recognize that God has given you something to give. Every morning I try to read something in the Bible, usually about a chapter a day, and then write something about it in my journal. And on October 15th, the verse that I read that I wrote down in my journal was Romans 8.32. And it says this, Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for all of us, won't God who gave us Christ also give us everything else? I wrote down in my journal that day that at the heart of Christianity is a God who gives. Look at the repetition in this verse. He gave him up, who gave us Christ, who will give us everything else. At the heart of Christianity is a God who gives. God has given you something. He's given you talent. He's given you a spiritual gift if you're a follower of Christ. He's given you some resources. But here's the key. He's given you something so that you can give to others. The question then becomes, how much do I have to give to others? In his book, Jesus Outside the Lines, author Scott Sauls tells a story about an acquaintance of his who was a hedge fund owner. And one night, this hedge fund owner threw an expensive dinner party. And at that dinner party, he opened a $25,000 bottle of wine. Saul's writes, I don't even know if I could enjoy a wine that, that, that's that expensive. He said, with every sip, I would be like, there goes a year of college tuition. There goes a new car. There goes the whole income for somebody living in the third world. And that's when it dawned on Saul's. If half the world's population lives on $2 a day, and that's true, about half the world's population lives on $2 a day, What would they think about the $60 dinner that I spent last week? Or a $20 bottle of wine? I think Saul's might be onto something here. Because I've noticed that there's something in a lot of us that thinks that the lifestyle just ahead of our own is excessive. So the guy who drives an Audi, he questions if you can be a true Christian and drive a BMW. He's like, you know what, that's a little bit excessive. That's over the line. Ironically, the guy who drives the BMW, he thinks the same thing about the guy who drives the Ferrari. He's like, now that is over the line. That's excessive. But let's look at our own lives for a moment. This past fall, I spent $70 to have my sprinkler system blown out for the winter. I will spend another $130 to get it started up again in the spring. It's $200 on a sprinkler system every year. If half the world's population lives on $2 a day, I will just have spent one-third of a person's income so that I can have green grass. Do you think a dad who makes $2 a day might look at me the same way I look at somebody who spends $25,000 on a bottle of wine? And all this leads to the question that we all want to know. Well, Where's the line then? I mean, haven't you ever wondered that? Well, where's the line? If the Bible just told us, you can live in a 3,000 square foot home, but don't live in a 4,000 square foot home, we would all go, oh, okay, well, now I know where the line is. 
If the Bible said you can go on one vacation a year, but don't you dare go on two, or you can drive a Honda Accord, but you can't drive a Lexus 426, then we would all go, oh, okay, now I know where the line is. But the Bible never says that. There's no lines. I'm glad. Lines lead to obligation. Lines lead to feeling prideful if you're over the line. Like, oh, I drive a Honda Accord, so I'm more spiritual than you are. Or feeling really guilty if you're on this side of the line. Like, oh, I went on two vacations last year. In fact, oftentimes when I hear messages about helping the poor and helping the least of these, it can quickly generate into a guilt trip. And so you start sitting there and you're slinking down your seat and you're going, oh, shouldn't have ordered that double chocolate molten lava volcano cheesecake last night. I mean, think of how many kids are dying of hunger around the world. And here you are spending $9 on a double chocolate molten lava volcano cheesecake. I don't see it that way at all. We serve a God who loves to give. And God gives us everything for our enjoyment. Look what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. And this is a great passage as you're thinking about, okay, how do I want to use my money? How should I interact with money and, and, and honor God with that? Paul's writing to a young pastor named Timothy, and he says this, Tell those who are rich in this world. That's us, by the way. I know we don't think we're rich because we compare ourselves to one another, but if half the world lives off of $2 a day, then we're rich. And so when Paul says, tell those who are rich in this world, he's saying, well, tell us. This, this verse is for us. He says, tell those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which will soon be gone. In other words, there's no U-Haul truck behind a hearse, okay? You don't get to pack up a bunch of things. You know, I'm going to take my golf trophies and some money and some memorabilia with me. You come into this world with nothing. You leave with nothing as well. It will soon be gone, he says, but their trust should be in the living God. And as we've been saying all throughout this series, it really is a trust issue. It's not a money issue. It's a will you trust God with your finances issue. He says, but their trust should be in the living God, and get this, who gives us all that we need for our guilt, for our pridefulness, no, he says he gives us things for our enjoyment. You can enjoy the vacation that God's given to you. You can enjoy double chocolate molten lava volcano cheesecake on occasion, okay? I don't even know if that exists. I think I just made that up. But look at what he says next to Timothy. He says, tell them to use their money to do good. Well, now that's kind of interesting. They should be rich in good works and should give generously to those in need, always being ready to share with others what God has given them. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future in heaven so that they may take hold of real life. The Bible says, use your money, not just for yourself, not just to indulge yourself or to satisfy your desires, but use some of your money to do good. Set aside the first 10% just to give back to God. 
through the place that you worship at. Could be this church, could be a different church, but whatever church you call home, give that so that God can continue his work in the world, but then have a little bit of money set aside to give to those who are in need, to give generously when needs arise. If you remember, uh, about a year and a half ago or so, we did something here at Eagle Brook called the Micah Project. And as a part of the Micah Project, we took a special offering, which we said we are going to completely give away outside of these doors. We're not going to keep anything for ourselves. We're going to give it all away to help the least of these around the world today. And that weekend, we raised $750,000, which is amazing to be part of such a generous and large church that can make that kind of impact. We gave some money to local schools, fire departments, police departments, food shelters. We gave $50,000 to Hope for Youth, an organization that works with homeless teenagers. We gave $100,000 to put a seminary in Ethiopia to train pastors and build up the church in that country. And we gave $200,000 to an organization called Healing Haiti. Healing Haiti began by bringing clean water to impoverished neighborhoods in Haiti where there was no clean water to be had. And they've since expanded into an orphanage, a medical center, a school, and a church. And then a couple years ago, Healing Haiti came to us and they said, what do you think if we partnered together to build a church on the poorest piece of land in the Western Hemisphere? And we thought, that was such a crazy idea. Only God could do that. And God's doing that. The church is called Hope Church. It's in a neighborhood called City Soleil, which is a slum located in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. In fact, the church is built right on the garbage dump of this slum. They had to dig down 80 feet through garbage just to get to any kind of solid ground. But the walls are coming up. And I recently had an opportunity to go there and to experience it. Take a look at the side screens. Well, you know, it's been a few years since I've been on a missions trip like this out of the country. And so it always just reignites my heart. And it just, it makes me think about the fact that we live in this global world. God knows all these people. He loves all these people. Uh, it's just a great reminder of that. You know, since we've been here, we've just been staying at the guest house. We just got in yesterday. And so, you know, there's a wall unit, air conditioner, good food. I mean, everything is pretty comfortable. Uh, I'm excited to step out of my comfort zone a little bit today. And uh, I think the biggest thing I'm excited for today is that, you know, I was reading on the plane right here. Jesus says that whatever you do for the least of these, you're doing it for me. And we're about to go into a slum that is one of the three poorest places in the entire planet. But what a unique opportunity today to go out and to serve Jesus Christ. And so my prayer is just that God would increase my compassion for people, that I would see people the way that God sees people and specifically see the people here of Haiti the way God sees them. So we started out the morning by getting in a tap tap, which is kind of like a bus. And uh, we drove into City Soleil. You can see it progressively getting more impoverished as you drive in. And then you actually get into the heart of it and it's all corrugated metal and there's garbage everywhere. Healing Haiti is one of the very few ministries that will go into that community. And they deliver water there and so got to be a part of the water truck, uh, pouring buckets, delivering buckets to people's homes. 
it's a it's a pretty unique experience. I've seen poverty before. Uh, I think what shocked me was the kids and the number of people there. I was so surprised that there was little kids running around all by themselves and there was no family unit there. I, I've been told some of these parents are out just trying to make money or get food uh, and their kids are just kind of on their own. Others are just kids who are, they don't have a family and they're kind of just basically in what's called a restivic situation as a slave kid. But you know, I have kids who are 10, seven, five, and three. And a lot of the kids that we were walking with were around the ages of 10, seven, five, and three. And, you know, my kids have clothes, they have a bed, they've got food in their stomach, they've got an education, and they go to school. Th these kids had none of those things. One of the biggest things that stuck out to me was how much they craved physical touch. They wanted to hold your hand, they wanted you to pick them up, they wanted you to hold them tight. I would rub their back and whisper things to them. They were just craving attention. And, you know, I'd pick two girls up at one point and just start spinning them around. And you would have thought they were on a roller coaster at Nickelodeon University at Mall of America. I mean, they were just laughing, huge smiles on their face. I was just really struck by how kids just, they wanted love so badly from somebody. So, you know, you're walking past all these homes, you've got all these little kids around you who are essentially walking naked and you see um, ditches filled with putrid water. Then you come up on top of this garbage dump and they've built this church called Hope Church. And you just think about the impact that that church could make and you start hearing them talk about 400 kids can come to this school and they can get an education from kindergarten, you know, all the way up uh, through high school. And they get to sit down at a desk and go, that's my desk. And to feel that sense of value and worth and to be poured into and to get educated. And you think about them coming to church and they're hearing the word of God and they're worshiping and there's music. And, you know, we were being followed by probably 25 to 50 kids as we walked through this neighborhood. They just flock to you and they follow you wherever you go. And I walked in and one of the pastors who's involved with Healing Haiti had circled up all of these kids and was delivering a message to them right in the middle of this church. And the church isn't even built yet. I mean, it's still just coming up. The walls are incomplete. And uh, he was preaching the word of God. I mean, I, I think I sweat, but this guy was just dripping. And so you think about what a church that teaches God's word in a, in a biblical, you know, true fashion, uh, it could completely transform everything about that neighborhood. I told one of the members of Healing Haiti, I said, this church is going to be some of these kids' favorite place on earth. It's going to be the place that they're going to grow up 30, 40 years from now, and they're going to look back and go, that's my happy place. You know, that's the place where growing up, I just wanted to be there because it was so different than what I saw on the outside, you know, of that church. some people are born in Haiti into poverty that's shocking to our eyes, while other people are born in America into incredible wealth compared to the rest of this world. But I do know that God cares about the poor. 
And as a follower of Jesus Christ, he's given us a responsibility to care about the poor as well. Which is why it was so inspiring to see this Hope Church, a church built on a garbage dump, but God is gonna use it. And Eagle Brook Church got to play a part in it. Your generosity helped build a church and reach people for Christ halfway around the world. first places that we delivered water to, I was helping a woman bring a bucket of water back to her home, and, and she lived about a mile away from the water truck, which I felt like kind of a weenie because I had to stop and take a break, pretend like I couldn't get a grip, but I really just was really tired. And as I was leaving her house, this little girl, eight, about 18 months or so, began to follow me. And the kids in Haiti, as I mentioned in the video, they're just starving for attention. They yell out, hey you, hey you, and they just want you to hold their hand or to hold them tight. And so this little 18-month-year-old girl followed me all the way back to the water truck. And when I got back, I said to one of the people from Healing Haiti, I said, I, I don't know how to get her back to her home. And they said, well, she'll make her way there. And so I picked this little girl up, and I held her tight. And I found myself with just the urge to whisper into her ear, Jesus loves you. You're a special little girl. God, God loves you so much. And then I put her down, I watched her waddle around the water truck, and eventually she started making her way back towards her house. 18 months years old, walking around in one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the world all by herself. Just a shirt, no, clip, no pants, looking for food and water. On the plane ride home, there was another 18-month-year-old little girl. Her mom was trying to get her to sleep. While the rest of us watched movies or read books, I watched as this mom was so tender with her daughter. She held her close. She rocked her back and forth. She sang little lullabies in her ear. And I didn't cry the entire time that I was in Haiti. But as I sat on the back of this plane, I just lost it. Watching this mom and thinking, what if every little boy or girl in this world had a mom or a dad who would hold them close and who would tell them that they have nothing to be afraid of? And what if every little boy or girl in this world had a mom or a dad who would tell them how special they are and how loved they are? Not every little boy or girl has that around the world. We can't do everything, but we could do something. And so today, we're going to ask you to do what we did about a year and a half ago. We're going to take a special offering, and just so you know, everything we receive today is going to go straight out of our doors to help the least of these around the world. If everyone in our church gave $25, we'd raise about $500,000 that we could give outside of our walls. Now, $25 is not what you have to give. Some might say, you know what, I want to give more. I think God's moving me to do that. Others of you might say, you know, that's, a, that's not too much for me right now. I think I can give this amount. But whatever it is, we can each do something to help the least of these. And so there are three ways that you can give today. The first one is out in the lobby, we've got some giving boxes at all of your campuses. And there's a little yellow envelope there. Just make sure you put your cash or check in the yellow envelope and drop it in so we know it's to go to the impact fund. You can also give uh, out in the lobby of your campus. We'll have people walking around with iPads. We'll have computers set up at the information desk. You can give with a credit card that way if you like. 
Or if you want to just go home and log on to eaglebrookchurch.com and give that way or text to give. And you can see all this information here on the side screens. You can text uh, to that number on the screen and give that way as well. Whatever it might be for you, if each of us today said, God, I want to use my money to do good. I want to use my money to give to those who are generously in need. We could have a huge impact as a church. So we're going to stand together at all of our campuses and close in prayer, and then we're going to release you to go do just that. Hey, folks, next weekend, as you heard, we're beginning a brand new series called The God I Wish You Knew. So many times I'll be talking to someone, and they'll start describing why they're not a Christian, and I'll go, that's not Jesus. That's not the God of the Bible. If you only knew the true and living God, you would love him. And so if there's a neighbor or friend or family member in your life that you've been thinking, man, I would love to have them come to church and meet Jesus Christ, next weekend's message is the perfect weekend to invite them to. In fact, this is a four-week series. All of the weeks will be a perfect weekend to invite people to. should be a great series. Let's all close in prayer together. Lord, you have given each of us so much. And God, we thank you for that. We have gratitude for that. We enjoy all the things that you've given to us. But God, I pray that we would use our money to do good. That we would use it to give generously to those who are in need. God, this week, would you open our eyes and help us to see the people all around us who might need something that we have from us could be resources, could be time, could be encouragement, whatever it might be, God. And right now in this moment, God, as we release our resources to you, as we give back to you what you have given to us, we pray that you would use this offering today to make a huge impact in this world, God, for your children, for the least of these who are struggling the most. May you use it and may you bless it, God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great weekend, everybody.